Welcome to the WCAPS 5 podcast series. WCAPS is an online community dedicated to strengthening the leadership and professional development of women of color, specializing in the fields of peace, security, conflict transformation, and foreign policy. Join us as we unpack their valuable perspectives, learn from their strategies, and grow together. Vive. Vision. Impact. Voice. Engagement. So thank you, Mohammed, for joining. Thanks for having me. Dr. Mohammed Frazier Rahim is the Executive Director for North America at Quilliam International. He is an expert on violent extremism issues and a scholar on Africa. Dr. Frazier Rahim's areas of specialty are on transnational terrorist movements, Islamic intellectual history, Muslim communities in the West, and Africa affairs. In addition, Dr. Frazier Rahim worked for the United States government for more than a decade for the Department of Homeland Security, Director of National Intelligence, and the National Counterterrorism Center. Iran, Russia, China, to name a few, have saturated social media and the public realm with misinformation of the origins and the manner in which the COVID-19 pandemic evolved. How can public health experts share and engage with security experts? Dr. Rahim? You know, I think that there's this, particularly my time in government, we've learned from, when we think about contagion theory, and, and particularly as a young analyst going in in 2004, we would learn from the good works of how to deal with pandemics and epidemics, something that we're dealing with right now in the time of COVID, and, how, and think about how do, you can, how do you deal with contagion ideas. And so I think with dealing with extremist networks, there's this sort of interesting collaboration of learning from these different disciplines that maybe in the past historical, we thought that they were to be placed in silos, but there are a lot of techniques of surveillance, right? Surveillance detection, that something that we know is certainly very involved with those who work in the intelligence, national security field. We hear about surveillance detection, contact tracing. These are very much part of the toolkit. Any good intelligence efforts and operations, whether they're tactical, operational as well. And so I think that in many respects, public health communities can learn from another and then those who work in the national security broader apparatus can as well. And then also thinking out the box, I'm always thinking about ways of how we can come up with future future analysis, as we call in this, this business. There's something called a structured analytical techniques that we come up to give us predictive tools or uh, skills to be able to give insight for what's going to happen down the line. And so, you know, I remember President Obama making the statement that we need to build up our, uh, our capabilities to be able to do, to do tech a situation like COVID-19. And so right now, as we're in a pandemic, how do we predict for the future of what could come next that is a COVID-like? And then how can we also be mindful in this, this time that we live in that extremist groups also don't take a break? And they're also still very much taking advantage of activities as we're in a pandemic. And so in many respects, how can they learn? They're borrowing from one another, you know, pandemics and COVID and or public health communities, and then certainly those who are working in the national security space. So I know that's a bit long, but I think that that's important as we think about finding practical solutions, not just, not just uh, quick fixes. That's interesting. Iran, Russia, North Korea, China, and likely many others have conducted active campaigns to sow discord and to provide misinformation to further their agenda and to disrupt the social order within the U.S. 
We know from a variety of reports that Russia, China, and others are using the unrest in America to irritate racial and political wounds and erode our confidence, economy, and resilience. Equally important, white supremacist groups regarded by the FBI as a leading domestic terrorist threat to the U.S. continue to plot and plan against various targets, including law enforcement officials. What lessons have you learned from working against extremism that can help in getting ahead of the spreading of information that, that is not based in truth? You know, I, I think the, we, we talked about before this idea of, you know, deep fakes. This really came about, I think, during the time of the president of Gabon, Ali Bongo, who was sick. And there was questioning of, was there machine learning, artificial intelligence, or machine learning in particular that was uh, modifying his statements from his uh, what his face looked like, and so someone was controlling it. And I think right now with everything going on, there's a lot of areas in which we can we have to be proactive, particularly in the misinformation disinformation campaigns. You know, a lot of the state actors, this is not new, so we can breathe a bit. Uh, we've seen them engage in various overt and covert influence operations going back well over a century ago, and particularly looking for susceptible communities, vulnerable communities like in the United States seems right in line. And so what I would just say that we have to build one, our technological understanding, our baseline of that these groups are using new technology to use their old playbook. And just as much as they've adjusted and moved beyond just face-to-face engagement, that they're using technology as another building block on top of what their old techniques as well. And so what we have to do is to be very involved with making so that we have indicators and signs that we're aware of so that we can identify them quickly and then stop it. Just as much as we see this with social media campaigns or social media organizations who are aggressively making sure that they are stopping bots and other forms of, of, of propaganda disinformation, disinformation campaigns that are happening on the social media realm, I think communities themselves have to, probably at a smaller scale, have to be very prepared and know the language and also the signs that are being put out by these nefarious actors, both both state and then also increasingly we're seeing non-state actors too as well, which is very important, not just this the, the state-supported efforts of this, but we see nefarious actors, criminal networks who are engaging in this space as well. Pulling from their playbook of the 2016 U.S. presidential elections earlier this year, Russian trolls and bots directed by the Russian government outsourced their efforts to West African nationals in Ghana and Nigeria to run active disinformation campaigns to exploit racial grievances, inequalities, and prejudices in the U.S. Can you explain these tactics? Yes, I mean, I think the, 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 particularly the case of West Africa, we know that the Russians in particular were using West Africans who they thought would understand very well the African-American communities. I think in many respects, yes, diaspora communities and certainly those in the African continent would understand it, but there are certain nuances that were missed. So they were, were employing using financial inducements would certainly attract and appeal to many people to use that as a means to then target African-American populations who we've known have been, we've seen various issues of voter voter fraud, voter encouragement for individuals not to go to the polls. And so this is, can you imagine, we've seen this at a internal dynamic within the United States, but imagine a state actor being involved with that. So certainly it's concerning that the Russians, the Iranians as well, we know, as I mentioned to you, they have, though not at the level of Western nations, they are very aggressive 
in recruiting vulnerable populations, particularly African Americans, using sort of this revolutionary, uh, marginalized, broader solidarity of oppression to to seek a an ear, a sympathetic ear, who would be um, open to their to their message. I think largely it's been on deaf ears, but there are certain populations who see that as something that they could potentially engage with because they are angry with the state in light of what we see police brutality and other issues that affected African-American communities. Exactly. Iran has engaged in a quiet and steady urban foreign policy effort that has focused on minority communities in the U.S. Iran has employed techniques of soft power engagement to target and recruit individuals for their cause that focus on racial and emotional pressure points. Can you give the historical context? Iran in particular, I mean, this is their, you know, particularly I think it's important. I had a book that came out earlier this year on African-American Muslims. And, you know, going back from the, this is important. I mean, we know that 40% of the enslaved Africans that came through the U.S. came through Charleston, South Carolina, my hometown. And the enslaved African population, most scholars estimate between 15, upwards of 40% of those enslaved Africans came from Muslim lands. And so you've seen various iterations of Muslim conversion, reversion from Islamic hybrid movements like the Nation of Islam. And then moving up to the present day, we've seen individuals who uh, have embraced a more Sunni, or I should say uh, a universal Islam, but Islam on their own terms of being African-Americans. And I mention that because many communities have tried to rally uh, African-Americans and African-American Muslims around their cause. I think the vast majority of American Muslims who are of African descent or who are African-Americans would say they are just Muslim and they probably would say that they're Sunni Muslims. Not, does it, not that it even matters if someone is Sunni or Shia, but obviously the Iranian persuasion of Islam is a Shia interpretation, which is smaller globally, and then certainly in the U.S. it's smaller, and then amongst African-American populations it's even smaller. And so I think this is part of a, of a, of a um, religious proselytization effort by the Iranians, trying to get their influence, trying to make sure that their narrative is heard. We've seen, and there are various individuals, including jazz musicians and entertainers who have become Shia Muslims. And so I think there's a part religious dynamic that for many would say it's a spiritual, personal pathway that they've been interested in. And then secondly, there's another pathway of a political a hegemonic power dynamics that Iran has been engaging on and using sort of the religious under trope or the undertones on top of a political effort to engage in what I would characterize as a covert influence into the American population and why not use African-American communities and in particular when they can African-American Muslim communities as well. The Chinese government faces a diplomatic confrontation with the 54 nations of Africa There are reports of African students, workers, and businessmen being blamed for spreading the COVID-19 pandemic and a second wave of infections. These misinformation campaigns appear to have resulted from Western news reports highlighting that the vast majority of deaths in the U.S. have been of African Americans. There is, of course, no credible information to support this claim. What steps can policymakers take to provide accurate and reliable information? I mean, I think data science-driven information is just the best way to, to do this. The, the Chinese Communist Party just has a robust propaganda arm in which they can be able to counter this and counter it very quickly. So America, 
and our Western partners and also our Asian partners have to be very aggressive to make sure that we're putting our correct information so that the that the populations throughout the world, and particularly also in Asia, are aware of what is being used for uh, for malice and for for spin, if you will, by the Chinese government. This is no surprise; as they clearly have used it, and they have also used what's happening internally in the United States as a means to say, "Hey, see, this is what they do internally to their own people." I would also point out to you know, there's a fascinating new piece in Foreign Affairs, but you know. Despite the difficulty that we're going through in the United States, this is also part of what a democratic society also looks like in terms of its institutions being stretched and challenged and pushed. What comes out after this will be quite exciting in the sense of what reforms will come about. And I, I like, and I use this in my book, and I borrow from Lauren Van Meter and Amy Carpenter who talk about resilience. Resilience is not the idea to go back to the status quo, in this case, a shock a terrorist incident, an attack on Africans by the, uh, the Chinese government attacking Africans and blaming them. Resilience is to absorb the shock and then learn from that shock. And I think that that's a good, good sort of way to kind of frame whether it's the Russians attacking, whether it's the North Koreans, whether it's the Iranians, whether it's the Chinese or a non-state actor. How do we become resilient after these shocks happen in, in, in these incidences, these terrorist attacks, these moments of uh, conflict, right? of internal discord in a state? And how do you find new strategies that will promote a healthy and what I would characterize a model community all over the world? How can policymakers develop public-private partnerships to counter rumors and false stories? I think, you know, the private sector has led the way. We've just seen in the past few days that, uh, you know, Quaker Oats has decided to make some changes on their very long-standing use of the Aunt Jemima image on their uh, syrup. Uncle Ben's is probably next. Pick your uh, item. And so I think that, that that's an interesting telling point that the private sector feels the pressure, one, probably financially, but also trying to lead the way into real reform and change, which I think is important. Secondly, you know, the government itself, particularly with, with the Trump administration, is very much in turmoil. And I think that the private sector is going to be leading the example on a lot of trends that I think in leading up to the election. And I think that that, but also I think in a perfect world, these public-private dynamics of working in concert, agreeing, disagreeing, and finding real ways for success, whether it is a vaccine that we come up with robustly and quickly to deal with the COVID pandemic, or dealing with the issues of racism, or anti-Muslim bigotry, et cetera, anti-Semitism, you get my point. Foreign operatives and right-wing trolls use Facebook to hack the 2016 election. Afterwards, Facebook vowed never again and promised to take action. But with fewer than five months until the 2020 election, Facebook seems to be on a crash course so the same mistake happened again. Tens of millions of Americans rely on Facebook as a news source, but the company continues to amplify misinformation and lets candidates pay to target and confuse voters with lies. What important steps has the federal government taken to address the threat? I think that, you know, the federal government as a whole, I think it, it, there's, there's different elements happening, I think, at the state, local, and federal level. And I think it's important to look at it in those, those respects at a, you know, there's congressional testimony hearings that are being taken place, and those are important. That means someone's making some noise and making it a priority to bring this up to congressional oversight. I think also within administration, there's also agencies that are putting some, are, are prioritizing and making it a point. Yes, more can be done. And I think that's an important posture to look at. But I think incremental steps are being made, but, but they're not operating in silos. They have to be done in concert with both 
our various branches of government, legislative, judicial, the congressional, have to be involved. The executive branch in a perfect world is involved to look at meaningful change. But don't forget the power of local and state involvement too as well. And I'm a very huge believer of that. And the work that I do, even state legislation on terrorism laws are hugely important, not just the terrorism, not just being mandated at a federal level. And I think we forget about the power of change at the local and state level, just as much as the federal. The implementers are at the state and local level. The federal guidance kind of reigns and gives the, 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 the structure to it, if you will, the meat to the bones comes at the state and local level. Well, this has been great. Very informative. Thank you so much for your time. Great. Thank you very much.